If, let me allow you in on a little secret. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas. There are lots of things that I love about Christmas. I, I love the lights and the decorations. Uh, I love the excitement and the anticipation. Uh, when Diane Rao and her team was decorating, I was here helping to decorate because I like those things. Uh, I really enjoy our Christmas Eve candlelight service. It's a blast seeing everyone come with their family and friends and everyone's dressed up and the kids have uh, excitement in their eyes. Uh, singing carols, I especially love uh, the time where I, I spend trying to figure out what book I'm going to read the kids and then figure out how to get an ornament that kind of ties with the, the book to give away to the kids. And, and of course, there is the uh, lighting of uh, the candles and singing of uh, Silent Night. I can remember years ago when we were in the Rutherford Elementary School, we weren't allowed to have uh, lighted items in the school because they didn't want us to burn the school down. And so uh, what we did was, uh, we did, uh, first we started out with glow sticks, like, so we all like broke glow sticks and held glow sticks, but that was a little cheesy, so uh, I came up with the idea, why don't we uh, do the candlelight service outside? So at the end of the service, everyone proceeded outside, we, we had our candles, uh, we lit our candles, and we had those little, what are they called, luminaries, a little bag with the can, uh, stuff in there, and uh, one of the kids sat on the luminary and caught on fire. <laughs> so we had to put this kid out during the church service. So, But I love that kind of, well, I don't love kids catching on fire, but you get the general idea. And, uh, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, I, I love Christmas because of Jesus. I love the fact that, that, that God cared enough about us that he would incarnate himself in the God-man Jesus Christ, that he would come to this earth, he would live the life that, that we're called to live but can't live, he would die a death that, that if we had to die would put us into hell, but he would die a death on our behalf so that we might be saved. Those are wonderful things about Christmas. But if there is one thing that is, I don't want to say hate, that's such a strong word, but if there is one challenge on Christmas that comes my way. And uh, those who are part of our, our church family who have served in full-time ministry will get this. It's trying to find new and engaging ways to communicate the story of Christ's birth. It's a, a great challenge. I know God's word doesn't grow stale, but uh, you know, doing this over the last 22 years, I mean, trying to find a fresh way to do this is a challenge. And, and so I uh, do what a lot of uh, other pastors do. Uh, you know, fortunately, I've got some folks who help me with Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo. So we'll have brainstorming sessions and figure out, hey, what's, uh, you know, the Advent season going to look like as far as preaching is concerned? Uh, a lot of times we'll uh, purchase preaching sp sp Christmas-specific preaching uh, tools that kind of give us an idea of what it's going to look like. Uh, over the years, especially when Pastor Andrew was here, uh, we would pull together artsy people, and uh, I see some folks who have been part of those skits here today, and uh, we would have a, a good time setting all of that stuff up. And well, this year, uh, one of the things that I did was I acquired this video series. It's called The Wonder of Christmas uh, that Mike Bongo and Pastor Ben and I have been using to introduce uh, the service. 
or the message. And, and these videos, uh, they're well produced and they're helpful in getting things started, but I've watched that video that you were laughing at probably about 30 times. And I'm so tired of that video. And, and, and what has been frustrating about that video is, uh, well, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. Theologically, it's correct. We're like sheep, you know, we, we, we are stupid. We do stupid things. We hurt people. And we certainly need a good shepherd. And all of that's true. But the main theme of what we're trying to communicate today is this incredible peace between us and God that comes through the incarnation of his son. And, and that kind of missed that part. It touched on it a little bit. Uh, so what I'm hoping that, that will happen here today is I'm hoping that, that God's spirit will come and, and he will help me communicate the truth of this amazing peace that Jesus offers. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, uh, we're going to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, there's some on the tables around the room. Just kind of ask your neighbor to throw you one, well, not throw one, but hand one to you. Uh, that would be helpful. Uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 20. And if you're able to stand if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it, was told, as it had been told to them." This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here's the big idea for this morning. The peace of Christmas is the elimination of hostility between humanity and God through Jesus. That's what we're talking about today. When we talk about peace, we're talking about the, the ceasing of hostility between God and humanity. And as we work through this passage we're going to see that peace was made through an unexpected encounter with an unlikely people which contains an unimaginable plan of undeserved peace for unworthy people. So let's kind of break this down a little bit this morning. The events of Jesus' birth uh, occurred sometime between 4 and 6 BC. That's when Jesus was, was born. And for the, the 400 years prior to Jesus' birth, uh, from the, the final events that are recorded in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, 
and uh, the final prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament book of Malachi, for those 400 years from that point to when Jesus was born, God had been silent. And these four centuries of, of God's silence, they're, they're called the intertestamental period. So they're, they're the, the, the time period between when the Old Testament ends and when the New Testament begins. And during this intertestamental period, life for the Jewish people was extraordinarily hard. The, the Jews and their land were, were basically passed from one conquering nation to the next conquering nation to the next conquering nation. It started out initially with the Persians. And then the, the Persians were, were conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks were conquered by the Romans, and the Jews were tossed around between all of them. And at times, uh, the Jewish people, they were allowed to freely worship, which, which was a positive thing for them. But then there were other times during the intertestamental period uh, where copies of their Bible, the, the Torah, were, were burned, where they were forbidden from observing the Sabbath or celebrating the Jewish feasts. They, they were forbidden from offering sacrifices. They, they were even, at times, forbidden from circumcising their children. And for people who were used to hearing from God and worshiping, the, the absence of God's presence during this time was a horrible consequence of their disobedience. But God, God had not abandoned them. Even though they, they weren't hearing from him, even though they weren't able to, to worship him, and at times they weren't able to read his word, and even though it appeared that there was no hope, God was, during those 400 years, he, he was working behind the scenes. And, and he was moving things and adjusting things, and he was preparing a way for them and ultimately for us to be eternally restored to him. That's what's occurring during these 400 years silent years. And at this very moment, there are some of us here right now who are in an intertestamental period. Some of us are, are feeling really far away from God. Some of us are trying to pray, and it's just really, really hard. Some of us are, are trying to listen to God, but his silence is absolutely deafening. And when we, we seek to worship, even in the midst of a, a crowd, it's hard. Our sins seem really great, and our failures are real, and our losses, they're so incredibly overwhelming. And our doubts are, are unrelenting. And some of us, we're in a really bad place. And we're wondering, is there any hope? Will God show himself again? Am I going to be okay? And if you feel that way right now, or perhaps you have felt that way in the past, Take heart, because the God of the universe, he is a master 
at showing up in extremely unexpected ways. Look again at verses 8 and 9. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So you have 400 years of silence. No one hearing from God. And then out of the blue, all of a sudden, when it's least expected, in the middle of the night, in a Judean wilderness, four centuries of unrelenting silence, they are overwhelmed by the brilliance of an angel bringing with him the overwhelming glory of God. And what's amazing about all of this is that this unexpected encounter it occurs with an unlikely group of people. There's this unnamed group of shepherds who are, who are working the third shift. They're in the cold. They're, they're, they're not getting double time or double pay. They're just out in the cold, outside the city of Bethlehem, in the wind-shaped fields, where the birthplace of Jesus ultimately occurs. And we don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We, we don't really know anything about them. The only thing that we know is that they were overlooked by the balance of the world. They're, they're hanging out on the bottom rung of the ladder that people try to climb. They're not, they're not moving forward. They're not going to climb any kind of ladder of status. They're working hard to simply eke out an existence. Some of you know that. Some of you have been there. That's these, that's these shepherds. That's where they're at. And they're one of the countless groups of anonymous people that society just overlooks walks by without even seeing them. Yet amazingly, of all of the people that, that, that God could have brought the news of Jesus' birth, he chooses shepherds. Now folks, this is really good news for us. God sending his angels to shepherds shows us that, that God doesn't play favorites. And he doesn't determine our worth based on the way that our world determines our worth. God doesn't announce Jesus' birth to great, powerful government officials. He doesn't announce Jesus' birth to, to, to military leaders or to the media elite or just some kind of ivory tower theologians. Instead, he chooses the lowly and the humble and the cast aside. He chooses people that other people deem to be unworthy. People like you, 
and people like me. People who struggle with sin, who don't get it right all the time, even though we try, who many times fail more than we ever succeed. People who say things that we wish we never, ever would have said. And people who hurt other people even when they didn't intend to hurt other people. And I've always found great uh, comfort in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, it's stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Given that, it's not surprising that, that, that this unexpected encounter is, is given to some extremely unlikely people. And in the process, God shares with them this unimaginable plan. Let me show you what it looks like. Verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. What's this message? This message is this, this child has been born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and, and he will be the, the Savior, the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Lord. And with this baby, all humanity, who is the Savior of all humanity, there, there comes a, an obvious response for those who are in heaven. Because heaven gets it. And there comes this unimaginable plan for those who are on earth. Look at verse 14 again. There's an obvious reason in heaven, a response in heaven. And it, they're there rejoicing that God is glorified by the long promise of the Messiah. God is faithful in his promises. And throughout the Old Testament, he is constantly declaring that, that he is going to send the Messiah, send the Son. God has proven himself faithful and heaven rejoices. And then there's this unimaginable plan for those on earth. That through this baby, through the Messiah, 
God brings undeserved peace to those whom he calls to himself. Now, what is this undeserved peace? There's a word for it, a Hebrew word. It's called shalom. It is an entirely different and far superior peace than the trouble-free life and and prosperity that that most people in in our our postmodern culture are pursuing. When our world hears peace, they think of a day at home, the kids are at school, you got no spouse, there's no chores, there's, there's no dog that's bothering you, there, there's nothing going on, you have absolutely no interruptions. For some of us, that's what we think of peace. Others think of it as a, a life of physical health and financial prosperity. Still others think it, that it's, it's politicians actually working together for the good of people. Still others think that that peace is is, is not countries warring against one another or perhaps the the elimination of social strife. And, And when we consider those examples, you know what it shows us? That that kind of peace is always based on our circumstances. And we get that. Because how many times have we said, if only this happens in my life, things will be better. If only this occurs, things will be better. If only my spouse would treat me better. That would be Kathy saying that, not me saying that. (laughs) If only I was married. If only I was divorced. If only I had a a girlfriend, or if only I had a boyfriend, if only I had kids, or if only my kids would behave more, if only I had more money, or a nicer home, or a newer car, or a different job, if only this, if only that. And all of those if-onlys, you know what they demonstrate? They demonstrate that we're seeking a peace that is based on circumstances. That's what it demonstrates. That the peace that, that many times you and I are looking for is just based on our circumstances being favorable. But here's the problem. One day... That if only comes true. And those things that we wanted to happen, they actually happen. And what do we come to realize? It's not lasting. It doesn't last. It might be good for a little while. But over time, the peace, it goes away. And once again, we find ourselves disappointed and in despair. Now, this occurs because you and I, many times, 
we're seeking the wrong peace. We want this peace that flows from earthly temporal circumstances, but those circumstances are constantly changing. And most of the time, the reality is they are completely out of our control. Totally and absolutely out of our control. And so this peace that we long for, it's fleeting. And that, brothers and sisters, is not the peace that we need. And it's not the peace that God offers. You see, the peace that that God offers, it always transcends our circumstances. And, And it's a peace that that is rooted in a heavenly, eternal, right relationship with the God of the universe. And it doesn't evaporate the moment that something goes wrong in our lives, which inevitably happens. We, We need this thing called shalom. An all-encompassing fullness, a a completeness, a contentment that comes out of a right relationship with the God of the universe. And the reason that we need shalom and the reason that, that shalom is hard to find is because we don't understand what is ultimately going on between us and the God of the universe when Christ isn't in our life. Because without Christ, you and I, we are at war with God. Now, we get this to a certain degree because there are some people that that we can see that they are actively engaged in war with God. Let me give you a couple examples. Folks who are, are, are atheists, they're actively opposed to God. Folks like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Jennifer Michael Height. But the atheists, they're, they're, they're in the minority. Now, there are other people at war at God, with God. And, and, and these people, they're the ones who, who are, they believe they're neutral towards God. That, that they could kind of take him or leave him. It's no big deal. And they're not actively hostile to them, but they want to be free to do whatever they want to do. They don't like the idea of anybody telling them what they should do, how they should think, how they should behave, and they definitely don't like the idea of the God of the universe telling them that. And as long as God isn't in the way, they're fine with him. It's no big deal. But when God gets in their way, when what they want to do conflicts with what God's word says, neutrality is kicked to the curb, and they quickly man their battle stations. And the idea that people at war with God, they're found throughout the pages of Scripture. Romans 8, we've been there last earlier this year, actually. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this term flesh, it relates to our natural state, which is 
infected with sin and is hostile to God. And we know how this works because we know ourselves and we know deep down inside of us we don't want people to tell us what to do. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We want to do our own thing. We want to make up our own rules. We want to be our own God. That's our natural state. We push back against that stuff. Ephesians 2 speaks to this issue. In this passage, the, the Apostle Paul is reminding Christians of who they were before they, they confessed their sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, apart from Jesus, we are at war with God. We might not consider ourselves to be God's enemies. We might think that we're, we're neutral to God. But the bottom line is our very sin nature makes us enemies of God. And is it no wonder why sin then is elusive? I mean, why, why peace then is elusive. On the surface, we get it. We can get that atheists are enemies of God. And we can get that people who were neutral to God are also enemies of God. We get that stuff. But... What about religious people? What about people who go to church? What about people who pray? What about people who, who call themselves Christian? Who shop at Hobby Lobby? Who, very good, so it's... There you go. They're answering my sermon already, right? Who eat a Chick-fil-A, right? It's like Sunday, I can't eat a Chick-fil-A. Is it possible that people like that can be at war with God? Is that possible? Absolutely. One of the greatest problems with religious people is that they try to control God. And they do so by seeking, of all things, to actually obey him. Not because they love him, but because they want him to do things for them. They don't come right out and say it, but their actions and attitudes convey it, especially when things don't go their way. Because when God doesn't deliver the way a religious person expects God to deliver, they become angry with him. Why? 
Because deep down inside, they believe that God owes them something. They believe that, hey God, I worship you. Hey God, I, I, I read your Bible. Hey God, I, 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 I pray. God, I give. God, I, I, I do all of these things. And they expect that God owes them something. Last Sunday, I, I wasn't here. Kathy and I, we were out in Ohio uh, visiting uh, my grandson, Ellis, for the third time in the seven weeks of his life. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> what happens when we have kids, grandkids in Ecuador? I am in deep trouble. I will need a raise when that happens, so just to let you know that. Uh, and, man, I may get myself in trouble for saying this, but if we can't be honest, we can't be honest. Right? So... Uh, we're in my son John's church. This church is about the size of this room, and uh, it is packed to the gills. There, there's not an empty seat in the house. There are people standing in the back. Uh, it's near Cedarville University. It's a ton of, ton of college students are there. And uh, I was ticked at God. I'm like, God, living water's hard. This pandemic's been hard. You know, why are we not packed out like they are right now? And, and, and we're standing there and, and, and singing, Kathy's singing, and, and I'm typing into my phone a little note to God about how angry I am with him. And I start to think to myself, Mike, are you loving God and serving God's people out of love? Are you doing it because you want God to do something for you? And at that moment, I was doing it because I wanted God to do something for me. And I think that's, if we're honest with one another, many times we find ourselves at that place. And if you want to know if a person who is religious is an enemy of God, just think of someone who faithfully attended church for the longest time, and they no longer do it. Maybe they were offended by someone, Maybe tragedy visited their life. Maybe there was a host of other disappointments. But whatever it was, God doesn't deliver the, the way that they thought that he should. As a result, that worshiping God with other Christians and serving God is the last thing that they want to do. And sadly, when you identify someone like that, and at times that is the guy standing up in front of you talking, you can be quite certain that they weren't worshiping God because if they loved him, because they loved him, but instead were worshiping God because of what God can do for them. And that's a really bad place to be. 
And that brings us to the root cause for the lack of peace in people's lives. You see, the primary reason why we don't have peace in our lives is because we haven't truly made peace with God. Tim Keller, in his wonderful little book called Hidden Christmas, puts it this way. There is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. So the obvious question becomes, how in the world do you make peace with God? And the answer might surprise us. It's this. We make peace with God by recognizing that we are an unworthy person who is unable to make peace with him. That's how we ultimately make peace with God. When we recognize we are incapable of making peace with God. You see, the only way that we can truly make peace with God is if God first makes peace with us. Allow me to show you this by reading a little further in Luke 2. Look at verses 21 through 35. And at the end of eight days when Jesus was circumcised, uh, and in eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came into the Spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is <clears throat> and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus was eight days old, his parents, in accordance with the Old Testament law, had a rabbi most probably come to their home in Bethlehem and circumcise Jesus. And then sometime later, when Jesus was at least 40 days old, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord. Why some 40 days? Because it took 40 days for the purification pro process for, for a woman to be allowed to go into the temple after she had given birth. And in this temple, they, they meet this faithful old man 
by the name of Simeon, who God had promised that he would allow Simeon to see the Messiah before Simeon died. And upon seeing Jesus, Simeon declares, Lord, you are, now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. To which we're told that Mary and Joseph marveled at. Can you imagine that being said about your child? You're like, well, we better start really studying parenting books right now. All right, this is pretty big stuff that we're in charge of. Now, all of this is beautiful, and it, it fills us with Christmas joy, and it gives us Christmas goosebumps. It, it's, it's the stuff of Hallmark movies. That's what it is. But then Simeon says something that's earth-shattering, that would never get past the Hallmark censors, what this guy says. Something so against the popular Christmas narrative that it doesn't even find its way into most Christmas sermons. The something is found in verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a source will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In the midst of all of those beautiful images, of little baby Jesus in a manger and doting Mary and Joseph leaning over the manger and, and shepherds and sheep and heavily hosting glory to God in the highest are images of what? In the midst of it all, there are these images of conflict and death. And, and, and much of our world wants to, to relegate that tiny little baby in a manger to this like pristine, beautiful, wonderful, tender nativity scene. But that's not the gospel. And the nativity scene is not where you and I will ever find peace. If we want to find peace, with the God of the universe, a peace that doesn't wither in the midst of divorce or, or disappointment or distress or, or disease or even death, then the place to look is not the manger. The place to look is the cross. That's where peace ultimately comes from because it's Jesus' death and resurrection that ultimately offers peace. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's where peace comes from. That's where shalom comes from. That's where reconciliation from God comes from. 
through the chastisement of Jesus. No matter how hard we try, we will never find true lasting peace in the balance of our bank account or our immaculate home or a ripped physique or the perfect family or a carefully planned retirement or a life of health and wealth and comfort. All those promised peace, they are temporary. They will not last. They will never sustain us when the inevitable pain of living in this broken world decides to come and call. True peace comes from embracing the cross of Christ. Shortly before going to the cross, Jesus pulled his disciples together and he warned them of the struggles of this world. And he told them that he was going to have an arrest and a death coming. And then he was going to arise from the dead. But that struggles would follow them. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, shalom. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you and I want true, lasting, satisfying peace this Christmas, we find it in only one place. At the foot of a blood-stained cross. That's where our peace comes from. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us. Father, when we fail you greatly, Lord, when we obey you not out of love, but because we want something from you, Lord, when we're disappointed, when you don't act the way that we want you to act, your love is still there for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me and those sitting here right now and those who are watching at home, Father, to seek true, lasting peace. Might we pursue you with all of our heart, May we do it out of gratitude, not out of trying to manipulate you somehow. And Lord, for those who are in this place right now who have yet to respond to your call, I pray, Lord, today would be the day that they do respond. I pray, Heavenly Father, in, in whatever way they need to respond, that they would, but that they would ultimately confess their sin and receive your son. And Lord, that they might find the peace that they long for this Advent season. Lord, thank you for the offering that we are about to receive. Uh, Lord God, you uh, know the, the challenges that are before our church family. God, I pray that you would provide richly for uh, the needs of our church family. Thank you for how incredibly generous these folks are. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Christmas workshop that's going to uh, kick off early this week and for how uh, this family provides so richly, dear God. But Lord, would you meet our needs and would you help us to meet the needs of others? It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to